0: Turning plants into living sensors that can alert farmers when they are under external stresses. This sounds pretty sci-fi, right? Well, not exactly. This is what egg tech startup InnerPlant is doing, and today we had the absolute honor to talk with Shelly Arnov, founder and CEO of InnerPlant. InnerPlant is a company that is on a mission to transform farming by enabling crops to communicate with growers. It starts by genetically engineering seeds to contain a fluorescent protein that fluoresces or lights up when the plant is under external stresses like pest infestation drought fungal pressure and lack of nutrients drones satellites and tractors then observe when the plant is lighting up and through machine learning algorithms they are then used to isolate the different colored wavelengths that are used for each stressor then all this data is sent to the Inner plant app, where farmers can provide each individual plant with exactly what they need to thrive. I am so incredibly excited and inspired about inner plants, and I can't wait to see the impact that inner plants will make in the next few years. In this episode, we talk with Shelly about the technology and the science behind inner plants and the magic, quote unquote, that makes all this happen. We talk about system failures and how our current agricultural and food production system is broken and how we can fix it. Then we got into a super deep conversation about using tech for impact, how to make a large scale change in the world and the mindset of a change maker. Then to end off this absolutely incredible episode, we talk about Shelly's vision for the future and the impact that she wants to have on this world. Shelly is such an incredible human being who genuinely wants to make an impact in agriculture and move that mountain just one inch further, which is also something that we talk about in this episode. If you are ready to learn about the one company that I believe will actually disrupt the agriculture industry and learn about the mindsets and philosophy of the woman who created this company, keep on listening because this episode is jam-packed with pearls of wisdom and interesting perspectives. Enjoy. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Shelley. I'm uh, so excited for this conversation. I'm such a huge fan of inner plants and I can't wait to learn more about both inner plants, but also your journey. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you guys for having me. This is awesome. Uh, okay. So we are going to talk today a lot about inner plants, but I guess before we do that, I wanted to talk about agriculture. I think that there are a lot of misconceptions around agriculture. So many people, they don't really understand how important it really is and like how many things are actually currently wrong with our agricultural and food system. So I would love to start here. Could you like outline some of these big, big problems with our agricultural and food production system? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you say that. I think it starts even earlier than that,
1: right? If, if we take a step back from the problems, there is or there are so many misconceptions about agriculture. And I often joke that my daughter, she's six years old. I'm pretty sure she thinks strawberries grow in a clamshell, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and and I think a lot of people, when they think farming, they think about old McDonald's how to farm. Like we often joke about this, but it's not a joke. People don't understand what industrial agriculture looks like and where the, what do we actually grow? Where does it go? What do we do with it? Because most of it goes to animal feed, which I think some people start to understand, but What is more fraction of what we eat is actually vegetables. What does it mean to farm organic? So many people think that organic has no chemicals. That's completely wrong. It's actually more chemicals than conventional agriculture. So I think one of the unfortunate things is that there's just not a good knowledge base. No one teaches kids your age, like what exactly agriculture is? What does it mean to farm and how is it that we're able to feed our world? And if we had that conversation then we can have the next level of conversations that we really need to. And I think that's probably what you alluded to, which is the farming system that we have and that we know, and the people that do know it, the people in the industry really know it well, uh, is relatively young and fairly uh, fragile. So Mm. we've been, we had a green revolution, which was essentially a way to cultivate crops that, given the right conditions, enough nitrogen and other things they need, could grow better yields. And that happened in the 60s. And it completely changed the way we farmed. And that was right after we figured out synthetic nitrogen, which I think was in the 20s, last uh, decade, last century. So for 100 years, we've been farming this way. And then we very rapidly evolved. So in the late 90s, we found genetically engineered crops. And we found the chemicals that match those technologies. And then we used them everywhere where those crops existed. And the reason I'm saying all of this is because the systems are starting to degrade rapidly. So when we use more nitrogen, we actually need more nitrogen to get the same results. When we use more pesticides, we need more pesticides. And as we keep using more and more, our yields are essentially stagnating. And and the reason all this happens is evolution. Because if we do something so uniformly, nature fights back. And it's amazing at fighting back. It takes us 10, 15 years to create a new chemical. It takes bugs about two years to figure out how to adapt to it. So we need a new mindset, and that's where people start to talk about regenerative agriculture and digitizing agriculture. But in a sense, there's just so many challenges that people still don't understand, which is how do you make a system that is as scalable, as easy to implement without that one-size-fits-all that doesn't work so well anymore? How do you integrate diversity of actions without creating a system that requires more labor because we don't have people that want to farm anymore? These are some of the... Maybe I'll stop there. It's a lot of challenges.
0: <laughs> no, I love that so much. And I love how you mentioned like the whole thing about systems, because I always think about systems and how, just as you said, a lot of systems, especially in our agricultural, like food production system, they're outdated, they're broken. And we need to change that. But the thing with systems is that they're so hard to change. And that's what makes solving some of these problems like so hard. And I guess that is a perfect segue into Inner plants. So could you start by giving us like an overview of what inner plant is and maybe how you guys are solving some of these system failures in our agricultural and food production systems? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start actually.
1: It's funny because usually when we start with inner plant, we start with what the technology is. But let's start with what really we're doing, which is we are creating a new way to farm, a new system, an integrated solution that incorporates the plant data that I'll talk about, that we create, but also incorporates agronomical knowledge, practices, equipment, data, like analysis, in order to give farmers a system that gives them everything they need, that helps them increase yields, reduce losses to pathogens, reduce the chemicals that they need, without making it more complicated, without making it more expensive, without making it more difficult overall. So, I would say that's in the core of what we're doing and it takes more than just us. So we work with different partners to make that a reality, but it does all start with the seed technology that we create. And that seed technology is exactly that. It's a technology that we create in seeds that enables plants to communicate what it is that they need. And we do that by tapping into the natural things that plants do to protect themselves which are very early and a great indicator of what it is that the plant is sensing. And by tapping into that knowledge, we can then communicate that through the different systems to farmers to tell them you have a fungal infestation, you need to do something about it. And if you do something about it, you're going to get better results and better yield, or you have no problems in your field, right? There's enough nitrogen, enough healthy crops, and everything's going to be okay, and you really don't need to go and spray anything. So that's, in a sense, the, the high level of what we're doing and then how it's actually done in the
2: plant. That's really, really interesting. And I'm actually curious if you are willing to give us kind of like a general list of some of the things that a plant can express, some of the things and some of the traits or some of the problems that a plant can express so the farmers can take action with fixing those issues.
1: Yeah, it's, um so the plants react to anything that stresses them. And the things we look for are really the top of mind problems for farmers, which are And pathogens, it's fungal infestations and insect pressure. And then uh, nutrients is the big ones, Uh, nitrogen, NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Now, these are essentially the things that either cost the most yields to farmers, or if you have a lack of nutrients, then you're going to get worse results. And then that's the reason that we need to know better about how to apply. But what's amazing is that the plants really do react to anything that attacks them. Um, And another nice tidbit is that they don't react to things that they like. So if they have, for example, beneficial insects, which there are a lot of, they don't react to that as a stress because that's not impacting them. But if there's an insect in the field that's chewing them, then they start reacting. And for example, with insects, what they do is they start to produce a compound in their leaves that makes them taste bad. So they're literally doing something because they're immobile, because they're stuck in their environment, they've developed these mechanisms to protect themselves. So they do things in order to then try to get rid of those pests, make them less appealing to the pests. Or if they don't have enough nitrogen, they're going to start mobilizing their roots to be better positioned to extract nitrogen from the soil, right? So these are the reactions. And those are the early indicators that the plant needs something that we can tap into to help it.
0: Yeah, I love that. So literally, inner plants is talking to plants through all of these, like the natural immune system that all of these crops already have, which is so cool. And from my understanding, so the way that plants and the technology behind plants. and knows if a plant is under the stress is because of a green or like a fluorescent protein that is inserted into the crop's DNA. So can you talk a little bit about like what exactly the fluorescent protein is and what it does? And also, is there a different fluorescent protein for insects? Um, yeah, stresses exactly.
1: And- exactly. A different protein for different problems. So let's talk about how this actually is done in the plants. We talked about the reactions, right? Those reactions happen, when I say on the biological level, it means that they change the plant's RNA temporarily. That is how the plant reacts to those problems. So what we do is we we understand those sequences. We know what are the sequences that are activated in the plant when it's starting to, for example, protect itself from insect pressure. And we take those sequences and we add to them the fluorescent protein sequence. So basically, we teach the plant to do alongside that natural reaction produce a new protein and that protein happens to fluoresce, I like to say. I mean, it's a fluorescent protein, mm-hmm. but it's a protein like any other. It just also has a fluorescence element to it. Now, the nice thing about fluorescent proteins, first of all, they're very, very old. I mean, someone uh, won a Nobel Prize for identifying GFA, GFP, green fluorescent proteins, in I yeah. think the yeah. 1980s. And since then, they've been used in many, many, many industries, a lot of uh, pharmaceuticals for food additives. Uh, There's recently been um, insects, uh, mosquitoes that are supposed to essentially mate with bad mosquitoes and eradicate diseases that have fluorescent proteins that stagger. So there's a lot of applications, but they haven't been as common in ag. Now, the other thing about fluorescent proteins is that they're safe and they're easy to use. They're well-studied and you can do different colors for different problems, which is what you're asking and I too enthusiastically stopped you and said, yes. Um, <laughs> we always get that question. It's a very good one. So the idea is you can create a platform in each plant and we can detect up to five different colors, which is how we can at some point do all of those different problems that we're talking about. And who knows, maybe one day more than that. And then the other nice thing about fluorescent proteins is that they're invisible. They're basically a life source. And it's because of that aspect of them that there are light source that we can use optical equipment and then be able to see this from very affordable equipment all the way from tractors to satellite imagery.
0: Oh, oh my gosh, it's so cool. I I love it so much. Okay. And then once the plant like fluoresces or I guess lights up, <laughs> it sounds so funny to say that, but like, I guess that's the correct term, like lights up. But <laughs> So once it's under one of these stresses, then can you walk us through more of the the machine learning kind of algorithms behind it. So then how do you then know what plant is lighting up and how does that farmer then receive that data so that they can act efficiently and quickly on that stress?
1: Yes, I mean, that's really that's really the complexity at this point, right? But this is the part that's so important to get right so that it is a new farming system and not just for data. So the idea is let's start with a 5,000 acre soybean farm, right? Just not a crazy amount, but not a small mm-hmm. field. And the idea is we collect, first of all, imagery from satellites with very likely a pixel size of about two and a half acres and start to collect that to understand are there any of those stresses? So, if we think about fungal uh, pressure as one, we'd be collecting the imagery. Once we start seeing an infestation, we'll know because we know there's, I don't know, some, some optical signal that comes up that we created, right? Whether it's green or red, we just know what the optical signal should be. And then We provide that information to the farmer, but we also provide the information to the ag equipment, right? The tractors in the field. So we refer to the satellite imagery as scouting information because we can essentially say, okay, there's an infestation, it started to spread. Once it starts hitting five, 10 acres, then the farmers really want to go and do something about it and prevent the spread and the additional yield losses. Now, probably another thing that most people don't know is that fungicides are not curative. They don't actually cure the plant back. They can only kill or prevent the spread of the fungal infestation. So finding it early and preventing that spread is really key in order to protect the rest of the crop in that area. And then once the tractor knows, then it can go out to the field and take an action, right? So once the tractor knows where to go, the product gets mounted very likely based on a recommendation of a local agronomist because products are uh, really tailored for different geographies and different problems. And then it can go out to the field and look at every individual plant and act on that level. And then if we think about nutrients, which is very different, then it becomes more of an agronomy uh, system. So you have to know currently the part of the problem with, for example, nitrogen is that farmers apply all of it, almost all of it, even before they planted, And a lot of them apply in the fall six months before they end up planting, because it's the way the system is set up. It's the way that the equipment is available to them. It's the way that the inputs are available to them. So then the idea becomes helping farmers use less in advance and then scanning the fields only when you know there's some kind of pressure, only when it's a valuable time. And there's only a handful of times in the growth cycle where it really matters. And at that point, the tractors can really look at every individual plant And instead of averaging the nitrogen they spray on on the different plants, they can just give the plants that need nitrogen, nitrogen, and leave the rest of the plants alone because they're already doing well enough, right? So that's the way to take care of the plants that have a deficiency and help remove that problem so they can grow and provide better yields. And at the same time, let the plants that are already doing well stay the way they are and not use any additional nitrogen that is obviously just very harmful for the environment and soil and water in that area.
2: Well, that is definitely very, very efficient. I can imagine that this is really that farmers are really kind of excited about this, and are definitely being, this is definitely just a, a much more efficient process. And I'm actually curious, and how how do you guys ensure farmers are able to read and interpret the data in an understandable way so that they can act upon their findings?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Right, that goes back to. And every company needs to understand that, what it is that you're providing, what it is that you're building. So as I mentioned, we started with the C technology and the C technology took a long time to develop. It takes a really long time to make plans, grow them, test them, grow their next generations and so on. But after about three and a half years of development now, we have plants working and we know how they work. And now it's about building that ecosystem. And the ecosystem includes all the different elements that we just spoke about, right? We, need, we want the technology to be in the seed. So we work with seed companies to embed the technology in the seed. So when the farmers buy their seeds, they have all that same functionality that they had previously. But on top of that, they also have the seed technology that we're gonna now tap into and provide them more. And then we, have, we work with satellite companies or one specifically, but possibly more in the future so that there's someone that collects that imagery and that imagery then works itself into the other systems like the tractors. And tractors are a big focus for us because it's such a huge part of how farmers farm and how the actions gets done. But we can also work with drone companies, right? Or airplane companies, or essentially any kind of system that provides added value services to the farmers can tap into what we're doing. And the idea is over time, just to continue to build and add more place to the ecosystem. So at the end of the day, This is all seamless for the farmers, right? The data is just completely integrated into the way they farm and is streamlined into all of their data platforms, equipment, you know, whatever it is. So they can just tap into it from anywhere and see it and and have the equipment and everything be optimized for their field.
0: No. Oh, my gosh. I'm. I am a huge agrotech person, right? I love agrotech, like specifically gene editing, and I'm just I'm so excited about the technology and the vision for plan because I really believe that it is one of the most like scalable agrotech companies that I've come across. I think that it has the potential to like make such a huge impact in the agricultural field. So I'm so incredibly excited for it. And what are like next steps for inner plants? Like what are things in the future that you are hoping to do or accomplish? Yeah, that's, um, Definitely uh, a big
1: inflection point for us right now is that we just transitioned from being kind of full R&D mode to really commercializing the technology. So by 2024, we'll have the first commercial seats available for the farmers um, that have already signed up for the system. And we'll likely just wow. continue to add people into our system so we kind of know who our first users are. And we also work with them to make sure that we create something that they want. And um, alongside that, over the next couple of years, it's really just finalizing all the different aspects of taking this to market, including what does the app look like, right? When the farmers access that information, if they don't want to access it from the tractor, then they should be able to access it through inner plant. Or if they do want to access it from the tractor, then we're going to build an app in the tractor so they can, you know, so all wow, those different yeah. aspects. And then um signing up the right partners and I think for the right partnerships the goal is scale which I really appreciate what you said Rachel we've designed the inner plan for scale from day one it wasn't easy yes. it's much and, and a lot of times by the way if there's you know young entrepreneurs out in your audience and I really I'm assuming there are and I hope they are you have to trust your gut people will give you a lot of ideas that make a lot of sense but might not make sense for you for example we had so many people tell us just do it with hardware in the field just put you know some hardware sensor and connect it to wi-fi or let's do um high value crops like tomatoes and put just a few of these plants out there that are only there to be sensors and we had to make decision the hard decision say no because all of that will not scale and you will really derail our, our efforts and mission and vision from what it is that we want to build that takes longer and it's harder to something that yes can get us some traction. And we make life in the short term much easier, but will not get us where we want to go. So when we think for partnerships on the next scale is is really finding the right partners that have the same customer in mind. And that customer is the farmer. We have to find the people that really think about how can we create more value to the farmers that really care about the farmers more than they care about themselves and then partner with those companies because they will be the most aligned with our ethos.
2: Awesome. I love that vision. And as far as speaking about farmers, I know that you guys have Inner Circle, which is kind of putting farmers into the mix with how Inner Plant is going and getting them in the loop of different things. So can you kind of tell people listening what Inner Circle is and what the goal is for Inner Circle?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it's funny, we just redid our website and we have a tagline I love, which is Inner Plant is about giving plants a voice and farmers a choice. Um, But that's, yeah, I mean, that's a lot of it is we want to be as close as possible to our customers. And we wanted, we started Inner Circle because we wanted to know that they care, to be honest. we The farmers that joined the Inner Circle actually paid it's a $500 membership. We wanted to do that because we wanted to make sure that they care about what we're building. And then alongside that, we built a lot of really deep relationships with a lot of these farmers. I personally talked to several of them. We have now 75 in the network, but I talk to several of them pretty much every week. And the nice thing is that they want to be involved in what we're building, right? So whenever we make a big decision, for example, we're trying to lock down, what should the satellite system look like? We went to them and we asked them, how many images a week? What pixel size do you need? When do you make a decision? They said, well, under five acres, we're not going to do anything. Over 100 acres, we're going to spray the entire field. And that really helped guide us in our decision of what pixel size do we need in order for this to be the most valuable for them. So alongside this whole journey, they've been there providing feedback, weighing in on different decisions, what to detect, what crops to work with, all these different things. And it's been great. I highly recommend it. It takes it's it's just so much joy to be working with your customers. And at the end of the day, you know that as long as they're there and still paying attention, you're probably building the right thing. And I recommend this for by the company, because usually if you're making a software app, you can just launch it and see what people think. We don't have that kind of privilege, right? We have to work four years before we get something else.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. That was actually going to be the next thing that I was going to ask, because that's another thing within our plants, is that you are designing for the customer. And that's what makes it so incredibly applicable, because a lot of times, as you mentioned, with biotech companies specifically, they may spend a really long time making this super awesome, uh, let's say like a transgenic seed, like say it's a transgenic mm-hmm. seed of wheat or something. Let's say mm-hmm. you bring it to the farmers after putting all this money, and time and resources mm-hmm. into it. And maybe it's not the texture they like, or maybe the people there who you've made it for the actual like farmers themselves, maybe like who they're selling it to, they just they, they don't like the taste of it. Maybe the color is off. It's these things that a lot of times specifically like biotech founders we kind of don't think about it and we overlook it. And that is almost like the downfall of it. So that's why I love inner circle and how much you are putting the farmers first, which is like the whole point of it, right?
1: (laughs) No. And I, I, if there's one piece of advice to me or my perspective is you build for your customer and either your customer likes you or you fail, there is no other outcome. Because it doesn't, you know, I've, I've heard here and there people be like, the customers don't get it. That's your fault. Everything you do is your fault because at the end of the day, you're building for them, right? You're asking them to pay for something that will add value to them. And if you cannot explain that value, if the value just doesn't exist or whatever it is, you failed, right? So we have to go into this understanding that the only person that ever matters or will ever matter is the customer and then find all the different ways to delight that customer, and it's funny that you bring up um, the moment you said that I, I, I thought of a story that you might not know. And I think it's fascinating. There was a company that was working on a low gluten wheat for a very long time, a biotech product. Oh. And um, I was thinking my initial reaction when they said that was like, oh, wow, that makes so much sense, right? Like low, everyone cares about gluten, low gluten wheat. So they worked on this for ages. They actually were able to build it. It was a huge scientific breakthrough. And then they found out that no one wants low gluten wheat. They either want gluten wheat or no gluten wheat, right? Like nothing in the middle really matters, which makes a ton of sense, especially if you think about, you know, when you actually make um, flour, you integrate a lot of different species, like the gluten could be added or removed. It's, It's very processed, right? So there wasn't a market for it. And the reality is that I think a lot of people get really in love with the technology and forget to go out and ask their customers and do the market research and figure out that people actually want what it is you're building because if they don't build something else there's a lot of things that you can solve
0: yeah I love that I I've never heard of that story thank you for bringing that up that's so interesting yeah wow and I guess switching gears a little bit when we were talking like before this episode you said something that really stuck with me about how Every individual has the capacity to make a real change in the world, like a large scale change. And I think that this will come as almost like a shock to a lot of people because (laughs) we are not conditioned to think that way, to think that we can actually make like a large change in the world. Look at these massive problems like equality, data privacy, climate change, uh, food production, poverty, and we dismiss them as too big because they they seem too big and too daunting. So
1: why do you think that is? that we're not conditioned for it?
0: I think a lot of the times it is just our education system. We're brought very much up by the textbook. If you don't know the mm-hmm. answer, like look to the back of the textbook and wow, you know, there's <laughs> the correct answer. And I think then when it comes to these big problems, there is no right It's Like how do you solve poverty? It's not a yes mm-hmm. or no, there is no right answer. And I think mm-hmm. that that is one of the biggest, yeah, the biggest like things, how we are conditioned because it's from that very, very young age. And yeah, so I think that that's probably one of the biggest things. And again, that's a system failure. So if we think about this, how do we want to build unicorn people, people who can impact a billion people, right? How do we build these people if like our education system doesn't condition them to think that way or to solve big problems, right? Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I was uh, joking
1: because we, we talked last week, right? Just briefly. And I was smiling the whole time. I, I don't think I've been that inspired in a very long time. And I talked to a lot of inspiring people. But you guys are inspiring because you're very young and you are doing all the things that you're taking action. Even this podcast, you're taking action. And I think that's at the end of the day, the solution. Ideally, you can, you're going to spread it more than I will because people will listen to this and they'll understand that Anyone can do anything at any age if they choose to. That was uh, definitely what you're saying is really much my quote. And I believe that most people, especially when they're in in my age, are very much conditioned to think that things are complicated. They're focused on the now. They're focused on what it is that's happening within their, their family, their situation. And they never actually think that they have an opportunity or they have a chance to change something meaningful. And the reality is that every individual can, right? And I'm not saying that as like, yes, go start something and you're going to solve world hunger. But if you do not try, you will definitely fail. And that's really the premise that we should start with. Because if we don't try, we fail. And if we want to succeed, we at least have a chance by trying. And if you do it enough times, and if you have the right team to support you and the right attitude and the right mentors and all of that, you might actually succeed. Maybe not the first time, maybe the second or the third and then once you get into the habit, you can go and solve other problems. And there's never going to be a lack of problems. So I, I do hope that I do think you guys are incredibly inspiring. I, I just hope that a lot of other teenagers out there understand that you can definitely change the world and you might fail 10 times, but if you don't try, you failed anyway. So you might as well give it a shot and that will be a, world, a life worth living, right? And the best case scenario is that you actually make an impact and you leave the world a little bit better than you, you got into it. And that's awesome.
0: I'm smiling. Thank God, right right now. i so. I I I love every single word of that. (laughs) But continue.
1: Sorry. No, and I'm. I'm, I was gonna say because when you're saying uh, these are complicated problems, they are so complicated, right? Not just because you can't just solve them because they're incredibly intertwined. Like for example, food. It's geopolitical. You know, we think about food as if it's a thing that happens here. Well, here's the thing: if we reduce yields in the U.S for whatever reason, we transition to a farming system that's sufficient whatever it is, the ripple effects of that will actually happen somewhere in Africa. Because there's so much globalization and move, moving of food that countries with resources will always have access to food. And when they have challenges, they're not the one that suffers from it. So we have to understand that the system works that way and it makes it even harder, but you can make these moves, right? You can start to move some of the pieces of the puzzle and eventually other people will move other pieces and you can actually make that geopolitical or like really complicated problem slightly better, even if you can't really do it all alone.
0: Yeah. Maybe too oh, much no. philosophy there. <laughs> no, that's so beautiful. And I like what you were saying earlier about if you don't try, then you fail. And that's another thing that a lot of people like don't think about because especially I think because of school, since there is that one correct answer, if you get it wrong, then you always feel like you failed. And people don't know that not trying that is actually failing. So that is kind of a mindset that I like. And in TKS, the program that Sierra and I are in, that's one of the mindsets that we learn a lot about is learn to love failure and become comfortable with it. Right. So love that. And what is another important mindset? Do you think that a change maker needs? like one of these change maker mindsets that you think is really crucial for actually having this mindset of, I can solve big issues. I can make an impact in the world. I can do something that matters. What is another one of those key mindsets? Wow. that's um, There's many, right?
1: Unfortunately, this one is not so unique, but Tenacity, right? You've probably heard this many Mm. times. But I do think it's... I was talking to a friend recently. She used to be a a venture capitalist and she now started a company. And something she said to me is really... I've been quoting her a lot in the last few weeks, which is, wow, when you start a company, it's like you push really hard and then you wait all the time, (laughs) right? And she wasn't used to it. In venture capital, in investing, everything moves really fast. They come in, they do deals, they move on. But that's the reality is that you cannot expect that change to be easy or to be quick. It's not going to be easy, which is the reason I gave the whole speech about these are complicated problems. You're not going to see a clear solution. You're going to make some sacrifices. You're going to do things slightly different than you would want them in an ideal world, but it's still going to be better than what we have. And it is going to take a long time, right? So I like to think about or to explain what it is that we do is if you start a company, and I think for you guys, it's when, not if, um, (laughs) you wake up every morning and you go and you push a mountain. And you do that all day long and the mountain eventually moves an inch, right? But that's kind of how it works. <laughs> and it takes a long, long time and you have a lot of failures. But even more than that, you just it's so slow when we want it to go so fast. But the reality is that if you keep at it and as long as you're, you see that the writing's on the wall and it's, it's the right thing, you're building the right thing, you're heading in the right direction, your customers like you, the concept makes sense, the financial makes sense, eventually it'll come together and if it happens slower rather than faster, it might even be more resilient long term because it was built on, on a foundation.
2: Oh, I love that so so much. That's just so, something that's so important and I really hope that all of the viewers, all the people listening can really internalize that. And something I'm very curious about is what actually got you interested and in, like you know passionate about solving, the world's biggest problems. Like I know before founding Innerplant, you were looking into food waste and stuff like that. So how did that process come about? What before starting Innerplant?
1: Yeah. So like I mentioned, this is uh, I think I mentioned this my third company. So I've done this a few times before. Definitely not as big as in impactful as Innerplant, but I had to go through my learning stage, and that's another thing that's okay. Is that sometimes you start smaller, and you need to build your experience and your confidence to get to something big. I've always had a passion for food. I am one of those people that looks at videos of how to, like, you know, fundamentally cook things. Like, what are the, you know, exactly techniques India. and all that stuff? <laughs> Cooks Illustrated. I don't know. I'm like, <laughs> they're really good. But uh, so I was, I've always been fascinated with food. I did kind of stumble upon agriculture, like you mentioned. We were looking at food waste. And I really thought that was an important, I still believe it's an important problem to solve. I just think that it's less technology and more human behavior. And I'm not as, I just didn't see the path of how do you change human behavior because most of the food waste is actually here at homes and restaurants, supermarkets, and not so much in the field. And then I just came across this concept when I knew that agriculture is a space I'm interested in. And then I came across the biosensor idea and that's when things came together. Now, here's another myth that I'd like to bust. You start a company a lot of times that people are looking for, why are you doing this, right? Like in ideal world, you're gonna be someone that grew up in agriculture and lived on a farm and worked at a seed company and blah, blah, blah. And then you found this problem and you went and solved it. And, and that's all fine. I think that's great. If That happens to be your story. It's great. And you have a lot of experience and connections and network, but here's the flip side. If you're entrenched in an industry you tend to think that the way things are, are the way they are going to be. And that is completely wrong, right? Because industries change all the time. So having an outsider's perspective and being able to come in and say, okay, just because something used to be that way, like for us, I remember, year one, only Monsanto can make seed technology.
0: Yeah. Why?
1: Well, because only they can. But like all the people that work there are now, you know, in the market. Well, but, you know, and it went on and on and on. Because for someone that grew up in the industry, it was completely unimaginable. But for someone that hasn't, you can see that, well, it's a very mature science. There's a lot of talent that has graduated from those companies and wants to find another mission. The technology costs is reduced significantly because of you know, improvements. The cost of regulatory has become much less of a burden. Like everything's actually changed, but they can't see it. And the last part of it is that anyone can become an expert, right? It takes whatever amount of hours. I can't remember, but... You do this for a few years, you actually become an expert. So you can gain that expertise, even if you just like a space and you don't happen to come from that space.
0: Yeah. Oh, love that. And this is a bit of a detour and it's not necessarily a question that has a right answer. But you were talking earlier about food waste. That's kind of what got you into the whole egg space. And then it's like, oh, yeah, it's all human behavior. Now, this this is a hard question. I'm sorry for like putting you on the spot but this is I often think about this I'm like some of these huge problems in the world things like food waste n- another one is kind of poverty it's not necessarily one that technology can solve so How do you think that we as a world, as innovators and change makers, how can we actually help to push the needle and, you know, push that mountain, as you so beautifully put it, just an inch, just to improve it a little bit, because it's not really a problem like climate change that we can solve with technology Mm -hmm. or science. So it's like, what do you think is that thing that can really help us to 10x the solutions that we're currently working on to solve these more like societal and human behavior related issues in the world? That's
1: a really awesome question. So here's the thing. I, I think you can start nonprofits and they may or may not be a great solution. I don't know. It's not my world. But if you want to start a business, then you have to first understand that you can solve for a big problem that is a fundamental problem in society. And I, I do believe, by the way, that when you choose something to work on, don't be driven by money, be driven by the problem you want to solve, because that problem is the reason you're going to wake up every day and do this. Whereas money is money. It's not enough of a motivator. So let's say you want to solve for, I don't know, what would be the hardest thing, right? But maybe societal inequality, which I think is Mm -hmm. a fascinating, really terrible problem that we have to work on. It has to still be a financial solution because most people that you're going to deal with, companies, government, are going to be motivated by opportunity and greed. And that sounds terrible, but it also makes them very easy to understand. If you can create a solution that creates financial benefits for corporations and then also has a benefit for something else, then you can win in that space and you have to do that because otherwise it is a nonprofit. So for example, for us, we are not solving for soil health and reducing carbon emissions, although we will be doing that. But what we're solving for is how to create a better, more efficient, more productive system for farmers. Because Mm -hmm. by them adopting the technology, the world wins. But if we're doing this for the world and there's no benefits for the customer, no one wins because the customer won't want it. And if there's some that will do it for the right reasons, that still doesn't scale, right? It's really hard to convince people to do something because they should. And it's very easy to convince them to do something that's good for them. So I'll give you an example. And this is by no means a real example. But I mean, recently with Roe and everything that's happened in the U.S. that I think is just such a terrible direction uh for things to go yeah um that's also an opportunity unfortunately but if you think about it that way i think you can help people and still be able to do it in a sustainable business way so for example all of those people that are not not going to have access to planned parenthood or other means of you know controlling their own destiny will need other technologies and there's ways to ship them anonymously maybe this is finally a good application for crypto like, obviously, there's a lot of my opinions in this, but I think at the end of the day, when the problem is created and then you think about a solution that is actually sustainable as a business, you can help those people and you can help other people make money alongside that. And unfortunately, that is the way to do it. Even though if, if you want to hear something else, this is really the way to do it. And this is probably the way that, the, that it will work.
2: Got it. I, I love your perspective on that. And it's just kind of, yeah, that is the reality of where we are at right now. And it's kind of just something that if we want to make an impact in the world, we really do have to understand that. But I'm actually curious if you think in your eyes, 50 years down the line, do you think that'll still be the same reality? Or do you think things will change Or in the ideal world? Do you think things would change or would that still be the same fundamental reality? Oh, and I, I really like that. Um,
1: I think we'll never change, unfortunately. And this is the difference between being my age and your age, Is I, I used to think that way. And I still kept the optimism, but with the realism now, like people have been motivated by the same things for a very long time. And humans don't change, unfortunately. But that understanding is really what can help us understand for, for the people that choose to do the right thing, for the people that want to solve for the big problems that have an impact beyond just making money, There is a path, and knowing how the world operates is a tool that you can use in order to understand the incentives, to understand what it is that is going to help you get where you need to go. So I don't think that the world will change, unfortunately, but I think that every problem will eventually find its way to solve itself because of all of the different... Same with with climate, right? When things get bad enough, and when the cost of carbon sequestration will go down and when the incentives from the government will come in and maybe the the taxes and when all of these things come together the technology was never the problem the problem is that all of the rest of the things have to come together and then the, the technology is almost there right and then we'll get it through the finish line and we'll solve the problem
0: totally agree do you know what like all the technology is here i think we just need to figure out how to use it. And I think it'll also be a combination of different technologies. Like it's not just going to be gene edited seeds that will solve like our whole system failure of like our food production, you know, maybe gene edited seeds with also like blockchain somehow, you know, like virtual reality. Like it may be these super creative ways to combine these different technologies. And that is how we can actually make a 10 X impact. Not a 10% impact, but like 10 times impact. That's a massive number. And This is a question I love to ask our podcast guests. And I'm so excited to hear what your answer to this is. But if you had a magic wand and like this magic wand, it gave you the power to change or improve anything in the world, just with a flick of your wrist, what is this one thing that you would want to change or improve about, about our world? Wow. You know what? I think it goes back to what we're talking about before. I'd love to
1: see millions of young entrepreneurs. I'd love to see all these people that are so afraid of failing, that have been told that they can't make a difference, that are so worried about how things will turn out, just saying, hey, I want to do this anyways, and I'm going to give it a shot. And if we have an army of young entrepreneurs that are still optimistic and want to do the right things, I think we're going to see so much change, so much positive change in the
2: world. Yes, I, I don't know. Also- Was that a good answer, guys? No, <laughs> beautiful. yeah I, that I love that beautiful. and I, I think that then that's so important because young people this is the next generation we are definitely the more young people that are out there changing the world and have, and are like developing that that mindset that they can actually do this just the better the world we're gonna have so we're I all inspired
0: think, by incredible change makers like you Shelly <laughs> yes we are oh, you
2: inspired me
0: I I'm not
1: joking this is really amazing and then I I told you guys, I hope my daughter decides to do something like this when she grows up, but I think it has to come from you and it has to be a choice that you guys make. I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to go, I'm going to do great things when I'm young and I'm capable. It's
2: amazing. Yes, I totally agree. And our final question to end off a pretty philosophical one like the ones before, (laughs) but overall, what is the impact you want to make on this earth? Oh, wow. Okay. um i want
1: to continue to do my goal for life is just to continue to solve really big problems i want to there's never a lack of problems like we talked about early so i want to set up agriculture i want to hopefully succeed in this space and create more competition open it up i have this part of my belief is that monopolies are not good and pretty much every industry has them and the problem is that a monopoly doesn't have the customers best interest in mind. So going after industries that are monopolized and creating more competition, bringing to life new technologies, creating solutions that help the world and customers. That is really, what I wanna do is do that many times over. And then defund politics. (laughs) Hopefully someone will hear that and decide to do this, but I think it's key. When we talk about social inequality, it doesn't make sense to me that you can just fund politicians. That seems like a loophole that needs to be
2: relieved. (laughs) So maybe next time. (laughs) Yeah. I I love that, and it's that's a perfect way to end off this episode. Again, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. We talked about you know problems with agriculture. We talked about inner plants. We talked about tech for impact stuff about like building a startup and making impact. We talked about your thoughts on the future and stuff like that. And that whole conversation was just so insightful. I'm so happy that we get to kind of share these insights with everybody else that's listening. Such a valuable episode. And I want to thank you so so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Sharon. Yeah, it was great.